Hey there, welcome to the Lord to Death podcast. My name's Brett, and today is actually a very special day because I have a request from a listener from the Spotify Q&A function, and it's someone that I don't actually know if I know. In the Spotify Q&A function, we have Ali who said anything Lord of the Rings, which is almost daunting with how much there is to talk about there. Lord of the Rings is one of the most well-thought-out series of all time, I think, and picking just one topic has been pretty tough. When I got this message a few weeks ago, I thought back to a time a few years ago when I was out to dinner and a beer with someone I used to work with, and we got to talking about audio production. I mentioned that I wanted to start a podcast one day, and of course this was a couple of years before I had put any serious thought into starting one, and I gave them a basic premise of what I wanted the show to look like. My thoughts back then were a little different than what you might hear today, but I think that might be for the best. Anyways, the conversation steered towards Lord of the Rings, and I ended up explaining, in layman's terms and from memory, how death works in Middle-earth and how death is not equal for every race. After I finished, a couple who was sitting at the table behind us came over and politely apologized for eavesdropping, and said that if I ever ended up making the podcast that they hoped to find it because they really liked what they heard, and that they had no idea that that's how things worked in Lord of the Rings. The one fellow actually said that he was encouraged to pick up the Silmarillion because he had no idea there was so much thought put into the lore. He had only ever seen the movies. And I told him, as much as I love Lord of the Rings, I cannot recommend reading the Silmarillion. I read it many years back, and honestly, I was pretty young when I read it. So maybe this is why I think this way, but it was possibly the most boring book that I have ever encountered. But I think that's by design. It's written more like a history textbook than a novel, so if you're into that kind of thing, then it might be right up your alley. Otherwise, it's a snooze fest, no matter how much you might love Lord of the Rings. But back to my point, it was that story that brought me to doing this episode on death and the afterlife in Lord of the Rings. It's something that I've thought about doing many times, but I thought that it might be too boring and maybe a little too convoluted, and probably not everyone would want to hear it. Another reason why I think that this topic in particular is a great place to start with Lord of the Rings is that Tolkien once said that death and immortality is the overarching theme for the series. He said this in a letter from 1956 that read, The real theme for me is death and immortality. The mystery of the love of the world in the hearts of a race doomed to leave it and seemingly lose it. The anguish in the hearts of the race doomed not to leave it until its whole, evil-aroused story is complete. But if you have now read Volume 3 and the story of Aragorn, you will have perceived that. Which I find fascinating, because when I think of Lord of the Rings, I think of the story of Frodo Baggins and Samwise Gamgee first and foremost, and themes of loyalty, compassion, and selflessness. But it makes sense that death and life beyond death are main themes in Tolkien's eyes, seeing as there's so much to do with the dead and death, like the Barrowites the dead whom Aragorn leads from the White Mountains, and the faces of dead elves that Frodo sees in the Dead Marshes, and so much more. So that's what we're talking about today. Death and the afterlife in Lord of the Rings, or death and immortality. As most people know, elves are immortal and men are not. However, immortality does not necessarily mean that one cannot die, but rather that their spirit can live on. Elves remain unwearied with age and can recover from wounds that might be fatal to a man. But they can still be killed in battle. If you chop off someone's head, it doesn't matter if they're immortal or not, they're probably not getting up. 
The end result for elves is that their body will end up in Valinor, which means the land of the Valar, also known as the Undying Lands, which was across the sea on a continent westward of Middle-earth called Amon, which was also known as the Blessed Realm. Even if an elf is not killed, in battle their spirit will eventually grow weary of Middle-earth and return to Valinor, and we'll explain that a little bit more later. However, when men die, they go beyond the circles of the world where even elves don't know. And that's kind of it. There's not a whole lot more I can say about the deaths of men. Is there an afterlife? Maybe. But death was Eru's gift to men. The elves' immortality is a curse, of sorts, bound forever to Arda and forced to constantly suffer the past while men are allowed to die and have their souls unbound from the earth. I want to read a bit from the Silmarillion that kind of explains why men are allowed to die and why men's death is different from elves. Therefore he willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world and should find no rest therein, but they should have a virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world, beyond the music of the Aenor, which is as a fate to all things else, and of their operation everything should be in form and deed, completed, and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. It is one with this gift of freedom that the children of men dwell only a short space in the world alive, and are not bound to it, and depart soon whither the elves know not, whereas the elves remain until the end of days, and their love of the earth and all the world is more single and more poignant, therefore, and as the years lengthen, even more sorrowful. For the elves die not till the world dies, unless they are slain or waste in grief. Neither does age subdue their strength, unless one grow weary of ten thousand centuries. And dying, they are gathered to the halls of Mandos in Valinor, whence they may in time return. But the sons of men die, indeed, and leave the world, wherefore they are called the guests, or the strangers. Death is their fate, the gift of Iluvatar which as time wears even the powers shall envy. But Melkor has cast his shadow upon it, and confounded it with darkness, and brought forth evil out of good, and fear out of hope. Yet of old the Valar declared to the elves in Valinor that men shall join the second music of the Aenur, whereas Iluvatar has not revealed what he purposes for the elves after the world's end, and Melkor has not discovered it. Now, that's the general idea. Elves go to Valinor, and men get an all-season pass to the roller coaster in the cosmos. But we can't just leave it at that. We mentioned Valinor, and the Valar, Amon, and Eru. And I think that the best way to understand Valinor is to understand the Valar, and to understand the Valar is to understand Eru. So let's start there. I want to talk briefly about the creation of the Earth and the ones who created Valinor, so that we can get a better understanding of all of it. And I think it's worth saying, even though it's a little late to say it, that I am going to butcher the pronunciation of all of this because everything that is said in here, all of the names, all of the titles, all of the everything are all made up words from a made up language. And yes, all language is made up and all words are just made up. But I don't know this language and I have not been so well versed in the pronunciations of this language and so I apologize to anyone who is a diehard Lord of the Rings or the Silmarillion fan. I apologize because I'm going to mispronounce everything. With that being said, 
Eru Iluvatar is essentially the one true god, being the supreme deity of Arda, Arda being the Quenya word for realm, which is their earth, where the peoples of Middle-earth and Amon lived. I'm going to interchangeably use the word Arda and earth, but on this earth aside from Middle-earth and Amon, there was also the Dark Land to the south, which was the result of the Battle of the Powers and where no one lived. It's rumored that the Numenorians might have visited there, but it's not said whether they established any sort of dwellings there. Then there is the Burnt Land of the Sun to the east, which is also believed to be uninhabited. There's actually a whole weird history with Arda, where originally it was actually a flat Earth, it was just a disk floating in the cosmos, which I can't believe was an actual thing. Because the Valar wanted to build it to be symmetrical, it was a disk. It wasn't until there was a war when it was attacked by Melkor, also known as Morgoth, that the geography changed and it became spherical. We'll get back to Melkor a little bit, but won't go over this period entirely because it's a whole thing on its own. Although I would really like to go over it at some point, the First and Second Age, because it's really cool. But back to Eru, you might not have heard of him, since he wasn't mentioned in the Lord of the Rings trilogy or The Hobbit, but only in the Silmarillion. Even though technically he had an involvement in the trilogy. Eru is a transcendent being existing beyond the world in the timeless void. He created a group of angelic beings called the Anur, who helped Eru shape Arda through the music of the Anur, which is basically a chorus of Eru's thoughts given their own life, so that the creation of life and the world wasn't solely on the shoulders of Eru. One of these Anur was actually Melkor that we mentioned before. The way I like to think about this is in terms of the Greek pantheon, Eru was essentially Zeus, who was the most powerful of the gods and the leader of them. And then the Anur were basically the rest of the lot. They still held great power and were the first to come into existence, but ultimately they were nothing before the power of their leader. Eru single-handedly had the ability to create life, as we could have guessed, and it was he alone that held the power to create independent life along with the ability to shape reality using the flame imperishable. He created the bounds of Ea, which was essentially the universe as it meant world and all that is. And Ea lay within the void, where Eru resided outside of and assumedly where the spirits of man would go when they passed. He then gave the Anur the option to go into Ea and shape it as they pleased. The ones who chose to do so were called the Valar and were in control of shaping Arda. But as mentioned before, they could not create life themselves, but they could only shape it if they were given the chance, as one Valar, Heuli, proved by giving shape to the dwarves while consciousness was given to them by Eru. I like to think of this process as a dude just playing with Play-Doh and then all of a sudden dwarves pop up and it's just kind of cute. Elves and mankind came directly from Eru's thoughts, and were known as the first and second children of the Iluvatar, respectively. When the Valar went to go create the Earth, they were accompanied by the Maiar, who were lesser Anur. You might recognize the Maiar by title as they were reincarnated as wizards in the Third Age, some of which we would come to know as Gandalf, Saruman, and Radagast, among others like a certain Balrog. And it was actually two Maiar who were in control of the sun and the moon. The one who guided the sun was named Arian, and the one who would steer the moon was named Tilian. Following the creation of Arda, the 14 Valar who shaped it dwelt on a hidden island in the Great Lake called Almarin. 
But after it was destroyed and the Earth was reshaped, the Valar relocated to Amman and founded the realm of Valinor, where they constructed the Golden City of Valimar. These Valar would become known as the powers of the world, and were essentially gods, but they were not all equal. Now, this might be subjective, but this is how I interpreted it from the lore. Among the Valar, the strongest among them was Manwe, who was the leader and king of the Valar, being the eldest of the Valar. He had a brother, who we talked about before, named Melkor, who was just as powerful as Manwe, but had no authority because of his aforementioned treason where he kind of destroyed the earth. Now, I don't want to go too far into the history of the Valar on this earth, because as I've mentioned before, there is just way too much to stuff into one episode. And honestly, it hardly has anything to do with the afterlife that I want to establish. I do, however, think it's important to set them up as the all-powerful beings of Arda, not only to set up the creation of Valinor, where the elves go when they die, but to establish that gods do exist, and they are physical creatures that technically anyone could interact with if they could get to one of their strongholds. I think that's interesting in itself because it shows Tolkien's path from pagan influences, in this case having a sort of pantheon of gods that physically existed in the world, much like Greek or Norse mythology, into the more Judeo-Christian theology that we get in the Lord of the Rings series with the concepts of resurrection and Valinor being a direct parallel to heaven. There are plenty of references to different mythologies and religions throughout Tolkien's work, and I wonder if there's something to be said for all the themes. We know that Tolkien was a devout Catholic, and so the themes on resurrection and the afterlife should not be surprising. It's more the themes of reincarnation and paganism that are surprising to me from a Catholic in the 1900s. But then again, just because someone belongs to a certain denomination does not mean that they are doomed to have a singular view. And I caught myself having forgotten that in my research on this episode. That might be a little bit of a weird tangent, but I'm learning to be a better person here. Give me a break. So we know now who Eru Iluvatar and the Valar are. So let's talk a bit more about the continent of Amon and, by extension, Valinor. As I mentioned before, the Valar originally resided in Almarin, but after the devastation caused by Melkor, they migrated to Valinor. The major city in Valinor was Valmar, which was home to the Valar and the Vanyar. Now, I know all of these sound very similar, so bear with me. The Vanyar were the descendants of the first elf, Emin, and his wife, Iminye, along with six other pairs of elves. The Vanyar were known as the Fair Elves or the Light Elves. Under the leadership of Ingwe, the Vanyar were the first to set forth on a journey to set sail west and reach Amon, where they ended up staying. The city of Valmar was built on the Great Plain of Valinor, beyond the mountain shield of Pelori. It had great golden gates, gold-domed buildings, and streets paved with silver. Valmar is seen as the capital of Valinor, and it is likely Tolkien's proper version of heaven as the city's structures, streets, and gates are very similar to those mentioned of the City of God in the Book of Revelation. The entire land of Valinor was surrounded on three sides, excluding the north side, which was surrounded by ice. What surrounded Valinor was a huge mountain range, which I just mentioned, called the Shield of the Pylori. Beyond that shield was the sea that connected it to Middle-earth. The ice range in the north used to actually physically connect Valinor and the Middle-earth before the War of Wrath. The second group to sail west were the Noldor, also known as the Deep Elves. However, they were tricked by Melkor and used the aforementioned ice range to go back to Middle-earth, 
among those elves was actually Galadriel. After the war, when that physical connection was severed, they were seen as rebels and were not allowed to go back to Valinor for many years. For a time after the exile of the Noldor and before the ruin of Numenor, there was a chain of small islands called the Enchanted Isles, which ran along the eastern coast of Valinor. These islands created the Shadowy Seas, which were there to prevent mariners, mortal or immortal, from reaching Valinor by sea. Eventually, pity was taken on the Noldor when the Middle-earth began to fade into the Age of Men, and the once-exiled Deep Elves were able to pass back into the Undying Lands at their own accord when they felt it was their time to do so. After the First Age with the destruction of the island of Numenor when the Earth was changed, Valinor was no longer a physical part of Arda, and thus could not be reached by men. Elves could reach it if they sailed the Straight Road, which sounds a lot easier than it was for the straight road was only accessible by ships that were capable of passing out of the spheres of Earth. And, yes, that basically means that in order to reach the Undying Lands, elves had to travel through space. And no, I am not making this up. The straight road is a route that left the Earth's curvature through sky and space, to where the land of Amon now resided. It followed the old path that the first elves used to travel to Amon, and was only accessible to elves, but the caveat is that it was not open to travel to on a whim. The straight road was only open when the grace of the Valar deemed that it was the right time. And, on occasion, the Valar would extend the invitation to the ring-bearers. Like we see with Bilbo Baggins at the end of the movies. The only other exception that I can find, other than elves going to Valinor, is that after the death of Aragorn, Legolas would sail to Valinor and bring with him his dwarf lover- <coughs> I mean friend, Gimli. So that might shed some light on the Lord of the Rings movies and why the trip to the Undying Lands was so urgent and fleeting. Valinor is no longer physically part of the world, and any elf who wanted to ascend to the Undying Lands to be with the Valar would have to seize the opportunity to go when the time arose. For who knew when the next ship would set sail? It's like the worst form of subway travel, because if you miss your train, you're going to have to wait until you're retired to take the next one, and then by then you don't really care to see the band that you were trying to go see and you just want to stay home, but maybe that's just me. So while that explains the what, where, and when Valinor is, I want to try to explain the how and why an elf should want to go to the Undying Lands. Back in the beginning, I mentioned how the elves' spirits would eventually grow weary of Middle-earth and yearn to return to Valinor. So let's talk about spirits and what exactly that means. To put it plain and simple, there are two distinct components that men and elves consist of, Fea and Hroa, or spirit and body. The spirit, or Fea, comes from the secret fire of Iluvatar, which was able to create life, whereas the body, or Hroa, is what contains that form and is shaped from the material of Arda, or Earth. Death, to put it simply, is just the separation of these two. When men die, their spirit is shot out into the cosmos where it will joyride in the void for eternity, whereas the elves' spirit is said to be houseless or in exile without a body. So without the body, the spirit is powerless and vice versa. But it still exists. The elves' fate is to live as long as Arda exists, unlike men who are given the gift of death. Elves are spiritually bound to the world and cannot leave it, even after death. I know I said this before, but I think it's worth reiterating that elves do not die of old age or disease. 
and that is because their body is much more resilient to their spirit, and so it is able to stave off these things unlike men who would succumb to it. So elves are immortal, but they still can die. An elf can have their body killed, or they can lose the will to live as we see with the grief-stricken Arwen. When an elf dies, their spirit is unbound from their body, but it is still bound to the world, where it is called back to the halls of Mandos in Valinor, where it will be judged before being given new shape. Mandos was one of the Valar who was the keeper of the Houses of the Dead, or the Halls of Mandos. He was sort of the Hades of the Valar, to go back to Greek mythology again, and the Halls of Mandos were sort of a purgatory, as you would kind of equate it in Christianity. In the Halls of Mandos, the ideal scenario is that an elf spirit is judged after a time of waiting, and they can be reincarnated into a new body that, if allowed by Mandos, would be identical to their previous body. Alternatively, an elf spirit could be judged poorly and denied reincarnation if it had done too little good or too much evil in their past life. That or a spirit can decide to stay in the halls of Mandos until the end of Arda, when it would supposedly be set free. If an elf were to die in Valinor, this process was non-negotiable. You would be sent to the halls and await judgment. If one were to die in Middle-earth, However, they could refuse the summons to have their spirits sent to the halls and instead roam bodiless in Middle-earth, but they would not be allowed to be reincarnated into a new body. This was seen as a sign of a tainted spirit to the Valar, and those who decided to have their spirits stay in Middle-earth were often tempted by the Dark Lords and brought under their dominion. There were some, however, who refused the summons of Mandos simply to haunt somewhere that they frequented in their life, but they were forbidden to commune with the living. But then there existed people like Sauron who liked to break the rules with necromancy and were able to commune with these beings regardless and bend them to their will. Due to the marring of Marta by Melkor, say that's ten times fast, the elves living in Middle-earth suffered a weakening of their bodies over a long period of time, which is where the yearning to return to Valinor came from. This waning caused their spirits to consume their bodies over time until they became something like a wraith. But... This would only happen in Middle-earth. Over in Amon, this did not happen. So to sum it all up, when an elf's spirit is separated from their body, they are summoned to the halls of Mandos, where they await judgment and potentially get reincarnated into a physical body once again. It's basically a DMV for souls, where you wait until the underpaid, uninterested government workers decide to give you your permit or tell you to go to hell. Literally. But in all of this, we haven't mentioned the dwarves afterlife. And that's because we know less about it than we know about men. The most that we get is from a single paragraph in the Silmarillion, where it states that the elves believe that after their death, dwarves return to the stone from which they were made. But according to dwarven tradition, the Valar who created them, Aeuli, known to them as Mahal, gathers their spirits in a separate hall set apart in the Hall of Mandos, where the dwarves will help rebuild the earth when it is reformed. But if that's true... We don't actually know. The dwarves will tell you that their souls can be reincarnated as well, as the legends say that Durin was reincarnated seven times. But I think that's mostly a tall tale to keep the Durin line in power, but don't tell the dwarves that I said that. Then there are the Maiar, the servants of the Valar, who are immortal as well and will basically be sent back to their physical bodies after death if the mission given to them by their Valar master was not completed. 
We see this with Gandalf being reborn from gray to white. There are also half-elves who would suffer the same fate as men unless they had contact with the Valar and were given the choice to live the life of an elf, in which case they would continue on as an elf would. The only exception I can find of men being caught in the state between death is the Dead Men of Dunarrow, or the Army of the Dead, who walk as spirits because they were cursed by Isildur until their oath was fulfilled. Another who walked the earth in a similar state are the Ringwraiths, who were men that succumbed to Sauron's power through wearing the rings of power, which gave them a form of immortality, but reduced them to invisible wraiths who were bound to the power of the One Ring and were entirely under Sauron's control. I'm not sure that I would call either of these existences truly immortal, as they are cursed in one way or another to roam Middle-earth without a body and are entirely subject to another's will. Whereas true immortality, seen in the Valar or the Elves, means that they still own their bodies and they are only beholden to their own will. But that's about all I can muster up about death, immortality, and the afterlife in Lord of the Rings. I think I've covered everything here, but there is so much information in Tolkien's writings that it's hard to be sure if I've covered everything because every time I think that I'm done, I'm writing another paragraph because I've found something else. But... I'm going to call it a day here, and I hope that no one calls me out for being the uncultured swine that I am. Men are mortal beings who are given the gift of death, and their spirits roam the cosmos after their physical bodies perish. Dwarves are a bit of a mixed bag, and their fate depends on who you ask. It's assumed that their spirits are sent to a separate hall to await the end of time so that they could rebuild the earth, but we don't know for sure. Elves have immortal spirits no matter where they dwell, and have immortal bodies as well as long as they dwell in Valinor. Their souls go to the great DMV in the sky when their bodies perish to await judgment and are usually reincarnated. And with that, I want to ask, what do you think? Do you think that the gift of death given to men is a truly a mercy, or do you think it's a cruelty that they're doomed to have only a fraction of the existence that is granted to other races? Or do you think that immortality is the true curse? Personally, I wouldn't want to live forever. I find that the question of if you found immortality, would you take it comes up pretty often, and my answer is usually the less popular opinion. I think that to live forever is to know nothing but loss, and a limited existence is what gives us purpose. We can learn to live and experience just enough loss to give us an appreciation of our existence. And to live forever is to never have a silver lining. For to be eternal is to live without consequence. And I believe that it's that consequence, the fight or flight, that really gives our lives meaning. You can find us online at Lord to Death on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can find me on social media as well, mostly Instagram, because I was born too late to understand what TikTok really is. And if you have any questions, feedback, or ideas for an episode, please shoot me a message on Instagram or use the Spotify Q&A section on the app to drop a comment. Remember to not get caught up in the fantasy of your own existence. We, as men, don't get to live forever, so pick up the phone and call a loved one. Or if you have a pet, give them a hug. And I'll be sure to lure you to death in the next episode. And yes, I'm bringing that joke back and it's here to stay, baby. <laughs> See ya.